chapter 4. If you do not uh, have a Bible with you, there is a Bible in front of you, and we would encourage you to turn there so that you would truly see that these are the words of the everlasting truth that is given to us by Holy Scripture. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 859. We'll begin reading in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zareph, in this land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. They heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they, they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. No doubt all of us have experienced what it's like to return home as an adult, perhaps for a family gathering, perhaps over the holidays or other times of the year, and you feel, once again, like you're about 12 or 13 years of age. And there's something nostalgic about that, but only if you're the one that is doing it. In other words, if others treat you like you're still 12 or 13, that is quite bothersome. Perhaps it comes from your mom or dad or aunt or uncle or an older sibling but in your, or excuse me, in their mind, you are perpetually frozen, continuing on just as you were as that young kid that they once knew. And it does not matter how much you have grown, how much you have matured, how much you have accomplished, even if you have your own kids that are at that same age, somehow you can't break out of it. And it's awfully frustrating. You want to say, that is who I was But that is not who I am. And there is a level of disregard and perhaps even of disrespect that happens when family members want to just pat you on the head and say, isn't that cute, and send you on your way. 
Yet there's something comforting this morning when we see that we are not alone, that Jesus was disregarded by his own, his own townspeople, those that would have known him the best. But unlike you and me, who probably have done some things, and perhaps by some things I mean a lot of things, that were not so respectable and even childish over the years, leading to such a perception that we have to deal with now, that was not the case with Jesus. There was nothing in his past that he needed to be sheepish or embarrassed about. Nothing that he had to go, oh, yeah, about that. If anything, Jesus' childhood and teenage years should have led to greater respect and admiration. The notion that there was something different about this one. But that is not what we see, do we? Why is that? Well, I think in part it's due to human nature. And when I say human nature, I mean fallen human nature. That when we feel inferior, sinful pride and jealousy rears its ugly head. And doubly so when we feel inferior in the light of someone that we know and are familiar with. And what is the result? We want to pull that person down. We want to make them not so great. No doubt you see this with siblings. You see this on the playground. You see this in the workplace. You even see it on Capitol Hill. And it was exactly the same in Jesus' hometown. The hometown boy did not receive a warm welcome from his own. He was a little too great. And thus... He was rejected. And we'll see that this morning in two points, the revelation to his own and the rejection by his own. First, this revelation to his own. I know because of the marriage conference last week, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Luke, but as just a quick refresher, we have seen the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, and he was inaugurated literally through water and fire through the baptism of John, and then being thrust out into the wilderness to endure the temptation. But that does not mean that the temptation was over. Because as we read at the very end of verse 13, as he was tempted, it says, and the devil departed him, waiting for another opportune time. See, Satan's Temptation didn't just come in the wilderness, did it? Satan didn't just do that one temptation and then leave him alone. No, the life of Christ was one temptation after another. No doubt the evil one was working behind the scenes. And in many ways we see that even in his visit to Nazareth. As we see the doubts of those that were there. And that is why Jesus needed the Spirit. Christ as the God-man needed to live in the Spirit. He needed to walk in the Spirit. That's why at the baptism you saw that physical demonstration of the Holy Spirit descending upon him as a dove. And as we see at the beginning of our passage this morning, we see Jesus return, as Luke says, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. 
And there is a pattern for us as well. That just as Jesus needed the Spirit, so do we. Because we know the scripture that says that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Therefore, we must be alert, we must be sober-minded, we must be willing to resist him. But do not think that you can do that on your own. In fact, we cannot do that on our own. We are in desperate need of the Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. To hear what Paul is saying, we are waging war all the time, but don't do it on your own. Don't do it in your own fleshliness, but rather do it in the Spirit. You need the Spirit. We desperately need the Spirit of Jesus, needed the Spirit. How much more us. We need the one who has overcome all temptation, who indeed has overcome the evil one himself. As one commentator put it, Jesus did not return from the wilderness as a limping survivor, but as a conquering hero. Satan was and is the only one that can be defeated by Christ. Only in Christ can we gain the victory. And so look with me what it means to be spirit Filled. We see it in verse 16. It says that when he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Isn't that interesting? Jesus went to the synagogue, as was his custom, on the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus went to church. The synagogue was the local gathering of believers. And what did they do there? Well, there was singing, there was reading of scripture, there was teaching and preaching, and there was prayer. You might say that sounds awfully a a lot like our own worship services, and you are correct. The liturgy of the church has been the liturgy of the church since before the time of Christ. And that is where you found Jesus on the Sabbath day. It is what we are also called to week by week. Now, many critics will say, well, the church is filled with hypocrites. Yep, and so was the synagogue. We'll see several of them, won't we? And yet Jesus still went. Why? Because it's the place where the Spirit dwells. It's where we are filled with the Spirit, not by whooping ourselves up and speaking in tongues and jumping a pew, but rather in gaining the meaning of what God has said through his word and through the means that he said that he will use and that he will bless. Just as he unrolls the scroll in Isaiah and explains the meaning of it, so too we do the same today, don't we? This morning we have the book of Luke that is, in a sense, unrolled, unfurled before us. And there we gain what God has to say to us. Do you see how the word and the spirit always go together? Word, spirit, spirit, word. They're always one with another. And where they are not, you should be awfully suspicious. We don't need a fresh word. We need the old word given afresh, given again anew. 
again and again and again. And that took place on the Sabbath day there in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was just in its geography about 70 miles straight north of Jerusalem and 15 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, Nazareth was really out in the middle of nowhere. It was nowhere near the capital of Israel. It was not even one of the most important towns of Galilee. And so even though Nazareth is well known to us, it was largely unknown to most during the first century. And even where it was known, it was looked down upon. You remember Nathaniel's response when he was told that Jesus was of Nazareth. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's how Nazareth was looked upon. As a podunk town and out in the middle of Galilee, nowhere, nowheresville. And this little town, perhaps most likely under 2,000 people, is where Mary and Joseph settled. It's where Jesus was raised for 30 years of his life. As it says there in verse 16, this is the place where he was brought up from boyhood to adulthood. Rather in obscurity. Again, as one commentator says, in Nazareth they knew nothing of Jesus' miraculous birth. The, sound, the sands of 30 years had been buried. The tale which had been brought by the shepherd. The wise men from the east had returned another way. And the excitement which his arrival in Jerusalem had caused was long forgotten. Now they only knew of this humble family living in their humble abode. And so we see that this was also a part of Jesus' humiliation, that Christ, the Son of God, came down and came down to this place where nobody would know, no one would even consider it to be a part of a place of prominence. And so forever he would be known as Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the place that he now returns, but no longer merely as Mary and Joseph's son, not that of a carpenter, but that of a savior, that of a Messiah. And that is exactly what happens on that Sabbath day in that synagogue. As Jesus was asked to preach in that hometown synagogue, just as it says in verse 15, he had taught in many of the synagogues in Capernaum, and no doubt they were eager to have him in their own synagogue. And so the scroll of Isaiah was given to him. And it is not by happenstance that he read this portion, that of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. If we had time this morning, we would go back to try to re-preach the sermon, no doubt, that Jesus gave that Sabbath day. But as we think about what that sermon would have been like, let me suffice it to say that if you went back to Isaiah, you would see that Isaiah is a heavy book. As much of as the book of the prophets are, there's a lot of sadness, there's a lot of mourning, there's a lot of darkness and despair. There's a lot of messages of, of judgment and of vengeance. But chapters 60 through 62, where this portion of Scripture came from, it's like when the storm clouds break and the glorious sunshine, the light comes pouring through. 
In fact, this portion of Scripture begins this way in chapter 60. Let me just read a portion to you. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Do you hear the the words that Isaiah is trying to put forward that there is light, there is revelation, there is glory that is shown. In fact, Handel's Messiah, the chorus, the, the glory, the glory of the Lord has come, comes from this particular passage. And that is what Isaiah is saying, that there is a future glory of Israel, unlike anything that has ever been seen before. And right in the middle of that portion of Scripture, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 61, you have this passage that Jesus read that day. These three verses are like the sun, are like the the source of all the lights and all the glory of Isaiah 60 through 62. And notice what it says. Look at verses 18 and 19 in Luke chapter 4. It says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Do you notice that first person pronoun of me? Clearly this is a a messianic prophecy. It's a messianic portrayal. In many ways, you could say this is the purpose statement. This is the mission statement of Christ. This is what the Messiah was going to be like, what he was going to do here in all of its glory. And it's written in in classic, beautiful Hebrew poetry. It's structured in such that you have A, B, C, B, A. And so it all focuses, all points on this one message, that freedom is is coming. This is indeed a freedom mission. You notice that. The, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed. Again, it's a, a freedom message. It's a freedom mission. Many of you remember the, the name of the second Gulf War. It was called Operation Iraqi Freedom. And I don't know if that was completely or fully accomplished by that war, but this mission was Operation Center Freedom. That the poor, the blind, the captive, the oppressed, liberty and freedom is coming. And in fact, what Jesus is saying It now has come. It all centers on him. It all centers on Christ. Isn't that what Jesus says as he gives the scroll back to the attendant? And all the eyes were fixed upon him. And he says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Again, he could not be more clear. The glory that Isaiah spoke about... It is here. It has arrived. The Messiah is being revealed to you. 
It's being revealed in the person and work of Christ. In other words, Jesus is very clearly saying freedom equals himself. Freedom equals Jesus. Jesus equals freedom. And where is this being revealed? Where is this being made known? It's being known in Nazareth. What a message. What a revelation. What a salvation. What a freedom that is given. This is what Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 1, that the the prophets and the angels long to hear and see this day. And this day has arrived in your midst. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has commenced. It has begun. It is starting here. In other words, the gospel that day came home quite literally. And yet, what do we see? We see it was not received. We see that with our second point, the rejection by his own. Seemingly at first, they received his teaching. It says in verse 22, they, they spoke well of him. They spoke well of his teaching. They marveled, as it says, at his gracious words. The other gospels say that they were amazed. They were astonished. In a little bit, they were blown away saying, wow, this, this man really does know how to teach. He really does know how to preach. He preaches in a way that is different than what we've heard before from other scribes and from the Pharisees. In many ways, what a, what a blessing this was. And it truly was. The, the incarnate word of God was delivering the Sabbath message, was giving the sermon that morning. And every Israelites, no doubt, would have loved that portion of Scripture. They would have known it well because it was the glory of the nation of Israel. They loved it until it got to its fulfillment. And the fulfillment is the hometown boy himself. And from there, their astonishment quickly turns to skepticism. When they say, is this not Joseph's son? Is this not Joseph's son? The answer is no. This is not Joseph's son. This is the son of God. Luke has made that abundantly clear up to this point, but for his own to see that. See, that was the rock of offense. That was the stone of stumbling. And in fact, it says in the other Gospels that, that they were offended. Matthew 13, they gives, Matthew gives several of the other questions. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother's name called Mary? Are we not here with his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? You hear the murmuring, you hear the questioning that is going on. And then Matthew says, and they took offense at him. The seeds of the gospel were sown. There was opportunity for belief, but it was so quickly snatched up. Instead, there was questioning and scorn and contempt and offense and largely unbelief. They say familiar, familiarity breeds contempt. And we see it on display here. 
And it's not the first time we've seen it in Scripture, in Revelation. We see it in the Old Testament story of Joseph and his brothers. When Joseph goes and tells his dream to his brothers, you remember what his brothers say to him, are you to reign over us? Are you to be the one that rules over us? You hear the hatred and the contempt that is in that line of questioning. Yes, you may be chosen of our Father, the the most beloved, but they would not recognize that he was also chosen by the Lord. And so, therefore, the jealousy and envy turns to willingness to, to kill him. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. Because the same thing happens in Jesus' hometown. For the Nazarenes to, to believe in Jesus, it would require submission to him. And that is too much. That goes too far. For them to do, them, to, to do that, they would have to admit that they were the ones that Isaiah was talking about. That they were the poor. That they were the blind. That they were the captives. And their pride will not allow such admission. And so Jesus, sensing this turning, sensing this coldness, this building animosity towards him goes from prophetic announcement and blessing to prophetic warning and ultimately judgment. It says in verse 23, Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And you hear what Jesus is saying. He's essentially giving the sentiment of the room. People were saying, Jesus, we don't want your words. Entertain us with some tricks. What you did in other places, do here. But essentially what Jesus says back to them is, if you do not believe my words, and if you do not believe the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, then no miracles, no healing, no tricks is going to convince you otherwise. And he goes on to say in verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. His words have no weight. And then most scathing of all, he gives them two Old Testament examples of what is going on right there in that place is also what took place before with the great prophets Elijah and Elisha. That Elijah was sent to whom? Not to Israel, because Israel rejected him, but to a little widow in Zareph of Sidon. And Elisha, Elisha cleansed whom? Not his own but rather Naaman, a Syrian. In other words, two Gentiles that help and healing came to the Gentiles because the Israelites rejected their own prophets. And what Jesus is saying in part, there is one that is now greater than Elijah and Elisha before you, and you're doing the same thing. And whoa, this message is indeed too much for them because we read in verse 28 that they were filled with wrath 
And they rose up and drove him out of the town. And in fact, brought him to the brow of the hill, no doubt to push him off. And they would have killed him, but we know that it was not yet his time. And so, therefore, we read what is the saddest words in the entirety of this passage. It says in verse 30, But passing through their midst, he went away. He left. And we have no account of him ever returning again. Church, there's several applications for us this morning. First, we see the humiliation and the rejection that Christ, our Savior, endured. We remember what John says in John chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Do we fully understand the sting and the hurt of that rejection? All of us have been rejected to one degree or another, but to be rejected by those that are supposed to be the most accepting of us, that goes deep. Those wounds indeed hurt. And Jesus endured those wounds. He understands. He knows completely. In fact, Isaiah 53, another prophecy of Christ, says that he would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet he is borne our grief and carried our sorrows. What we should see from a passage like this is that our salvation, our freedom, our liberation was indeed costly. It came at the expense of Christ's own rejection. And his rejection was ultimately for our acceptance, wasn't it? That he was cast off so that we would not have to be. As Isaiah, again, will go on to say, his chastisement brought us peace, and by his wounds, we are healed. Those wounds were much more than just the wounds of the cross. Those wounds were the wounds of rejection, rejected by others so that we would be accepted. Second, we see here the nature of unbelief and the path to belief. Often I think we think if we were there during Jesus' days, then we would surely believe. We would surely have greater belief and faith than we do now. I know here, in a sense, the people that had the, the greatest revelation, the most familiarity with Jesus, one that they had in their midst for over 30 years, did not believe. Because it is not ultimately about seeing, is it? But it is about believing. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God, not ultimately by seeing. We do not believe with our eyes. We believe with our hearts and we believe with our souls. See, belief is not what comes primarily externally. It comes internally. See, the people wanted signs. They wanted the, the, the miracles. They wanted wonders. And Jesus says to him, no, you only get the word. You only get the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. 
And if you're not willing to submit to that authoritative word, then you will not submit to anything. You will not believe, even though the greatest wonders, the greatest signs are shown. And that is indeed the underlying message of Jesus' two examples of those that they rejected, those Gentiles that they wanted nothing to do with. Those Gentiles are showing the way to faith. They are showing the way to belief. You remember that widow in Zareph, that widow in Sidon, that Elijah said to that poor widow amidst a drought. This woman that had very little flour and oil, enough to maybe make one final meal. Elijah the prophet says to her, make me bread. And she needed to submit and believe that that oil and that flour would not run out. But she only had that, she only experienced that when she took that step by faith. In other words, when she submitted and when she believed the word of that prophet, she saw wonderful signs and miracles through the oil and the flour never running out. Likewise, the the mighty Naaman, it says that Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him, but just tells him by the word of a prophet or a word of his servant to go wash in the Jordan seven times. And at first, you remember the story, Naaman is put off by that. But in the end, he goes. He believes. He submits to that word. And what happens? He's cleansed. And so what Jesus is saying through these examples, it does not matter if you are small or you are great. We all must submit ourselves to Jesus and ultimately submit ourselves to his word. Only then are we set free And that's why, third, I think Luke intentionally places this story at the opening of Jesus' public ministry. We are led to believe that this took place later in Jesus' ministry, but but Luke puts it on the front end. He puts it at the very beginning, because I think what Luke is trying to say is not that this is going in chronological order, but this is going in the order of how you are going to come to belief, how it is that you're going to come to faith. And what I think Luke is trying to say and what the Holy Spirit is trying to say through uh, to us through Luke is that the revelation is given, that the revelation is shown, that the glory of Jesus is on display. And what we will see is that that glory is demonstrated in every subsequent story and every subsequent passage that is going to be laid out for us in this gospel. And what Luke is saying, and I think what more the Holy Spirit is saying is, what are you going to do with it? The seeds of the gospel are sown, but will they find hearts that are ready to receive it? Will it find fertile soil where that seed is able to go down deep and it is able to give the fruits that are necessary, the fruits of faith and belief and worship? And what I would say to you is that we need to have readiness. We need to have expectation. We need to have marvel. We need to have wonder. As we heard last week, we need to be on the the balls of our feet, ready to receive everything that Jesus would give to us. Because otherwise, it'll go right by us. It will miss us. And we'll miss the opportunity. And that's the question that we need to ask this morning. Is this message, has it become too familiar to us? Do we say, you know what, I know this already. 
I've read it. I've heard it. Nothing new here. Nothing to see here. I think this passage would warn us that cold reception quickly leads to contempt and even hatred of the truth and ultimately of Christ because that truth is Christ. That truth is Jesus. And you might want to sit here and say, I I would never reject Jesus. But we do every time we listen with cold indifference. Every time we hear, we do not apply this word, this truth to our hearts and to our minds and to our lives. Every time the word of God is preached and it does not change us, it does not transform us, we are missing the opportunity to receive Christ. You see, church, by God's grace, the gospel comes home every Lord's Day, every Sabbath. The word of God is laid open to us and the presence of Jesus is promised and given. Jesus comes home. Jesus comes to us every Sunday. And so let me ask, what kind of reception will he have here? We know what kind of reception he received in Nazareth, but what kind of reception will he receive in this place? Again, the scriptures are very abundant, are very clear about this. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. You remember that context of that passage that is given to letters to churches. And so the context here is the church. It's not just individuals. And what it's saying is there's, is there going to be reception in the church? And he makes it abundantly clear, if not, the lampstand is removed. The light goes out. The revelation is not given. Like here, Jesus passes through their midst and then goes away. That is judgment. Judgment we do not want to receive. See, if you go back to Isaiah's prophecy there that Jesus spoke of, you see that it ends in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know what the next line in that prophecy is? It's this. And the day of vengeance of our God. See, Jesus cut that reading short. He was there that day to proclaim the favor of the Lord. And yet they rejected it. And that favor instead turns towards judgment. And if they remain in unbelief towards vengeance, the wrath of God. And that is not just true in Nazareth. That is true Everywhere the word of God goes out. See, I'm not a good pastor if I do not proclaim that to you this morning. If I kept silent or worse, if I said to you, hey, no worries, you can come to Jesus whenever you're good, whenever you are ready. He'll wait for you. He's a gentleman. No, Jesus doesn't owe us one opportunity, let alone two. Or even more than that, every Lord's Day. Jesus left that day not to return. And so, my friends, Jesus is here today. Do not allow him to leave 
without a full reception, without a full hearing. It needs to be your prayer. It needs to be my prayer. Jesus, I need everything that you will give me to this day. I need your, your grace. I need your mercy. I need your power. I need your strength. I need your salvation. I need your freedom. I need your liberation. Jesus, I need all of you. Because I cannot and will not go on without you. Church, Jesus comes home every week. May we, by the grace of God, have greater eyes to see him anew, greater hearts to love him more, and a greater faith that continually cries out for more. May it be so. Amen. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we read this passage and we can be quick to criticize those in his hometown that day. But yet, Lord, if we are honest with you, we know that there is oftentimes cold indifference in our hearts towards your word, towards your ministry, towards your spirit, towards the things that you are trying to do, the ways that you're trying to teach us and reform us and change us and shape us. And so, Lord, we come this morning first and foremost confessing that and asking, O oh Lord, that you would have your way with us, that your spirit would be alive in us, that your word, when we read it, would come afresh and anew to us, that that old word that has been given again and again would be read with new eyes and new hearts. And Lord, we would continually be crying out, Lord, lead us, teach us, save us, free us. Lord, we know that that is a prayer that you always answer. And so, Lord, we thank you that you give us your word, and through your word, you speak to us. Lord, that message that you're speaking into our hearts this morning, would we not deny? Would we not reject? Lord, would we not have cold indifference against? Would we not even have contempt or hatred or scorn against it? But, Lord, would we readily receive it? And Lord, we know that that is a message first and foremost of submission to you, submission to your ways, not to our own. And Lord, when we do submit to it, we find that it is not for our detriment, but truly for our good. It is the way that you love us and show yourself to us. And so Lord, would we continually have that desire and hearts before us. Lord, would our prayer continually be speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Lord, this is what we pray, all in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, our